Hello, hello. Can anybody hear me? <laughs> that is my best impression of Pink Floyd. And uh, how are you folks doing out there? My name is Jorge M. Sanchez, and you're listening to the JMS Podcast. We have a great episode for you, as I always say, because usually there are great episodes, at least to me. And uh, today's guest is writer, poet, and artist Donna Steelman. She is such a great person. Uh, I mean, I think uh, I got to know her a lot during our conversation. But even before that, you know, when I go to uh, the open mic in Mountain View at Red Rock, I would see her there. And once in a while, I see her for Scotty. And she always had, like, this vibe that was very welcoming. And, and it, you know, when you walk around and just you see how people interact, and you just could tell that she has, like, an amazing soul. Like, just a very heartfelt great person all around so it's a great pleasure to have her here on the podcast and to really talk to her and 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 she shared quite a lot and and there's a lot of things to be learned and very very insightful so look forward to uh my conversation with donna steelman um how are we doing folks how are you guys doing uh where are you listening from huh are, are you listening from the car maybe you're listening from your computer maybe you're listening while you're studying when you're when you're supposed to study but but you're actually listening to me and i don't got the answers all right maybe maybe you should jot down the if it's multiple guess or it's a, if it's multiple choice <laughs> multiple guess for me a lot of times for those multiple choice tests it really was a multiple guess but if it is uh maybe you should scribble a couple c's in there you never know and uh, hopefully those C's are the answer. Maybe you're at work. Maybe you listen to me at work. Regardless where you're listening from, I appreciate you tuning in. And if you haven't already, you should subscribe, right? You want to get an alert every time a new episode comes out. It's like, all right, I wonder who Jorge is going to try to talk to this week. And uh, you can do that on iTunes, on SoundCloud. For a second, I was going to say Tinder. Now, that would be interesting, right? To get a podcast on Tinder. But no, it's Facebook. Um, oh, you can follow. Okay, I'm, I'm getting this whole intro just messed up. I apologized. Uh, I think for those who have been listening will realize that this happens often. They're like, oh, yeah, Jorge messed up the intro this week. Yeah. And if you're tuning in for the first time, Welcome. And I assure you, uh, I, I will probably do better in the next episode. But uh, definitely subscribe if you haven't already. You can subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher. There we go. And uh, you can follow JMS Podcasts on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. How about that? But if you really want to get more bang for your buck with this podcast, I highly, highly suggest you visit JMSPodcast.com. Boom, we have a website. All the content is on the website, whether it's interviews, whether it's videos, whether it's film critiques, whether it's any other things I'm working on. Check out jmspodcast.com. Um, yeah, I think that's what I got to say about that. Uh, pretty big news. Uh, I've been busy, uh, and I just finished my new vignette short film. It's it's part of my vignette series. It's a, it's a series of black and white short films 
all dealing with the theme of heartbreak. And I gotta say, I'm very happy with this one. Uh, I got great responses uh, from all around, great feedback, and it's called Camera. And it's available on YouTube, or yeah, pretty much on YouTube. And if you're a fan of mine on Facebook, it'll be on my timeline as well. And you know, I'll make it easy for everyone. I'll, I'll post it on the JMS podcast Facebook feed sometime soon. But camera, big shout out to the casting crew. Uh, I I could I wouldn't be able to film it and really put it together if it wasn't for the crew that I had. An amazing crew. Everything went smooth. Uh, we 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 shot the entire film on schedule, which is interesting. And it, it's even more fascinating because a lot of the film crew are not even film students. Uh, they're a collective of my friends who are poets, comedians, and writers. So I I. I I can't thank them enough for just showing up and helping me film this short film. Uh, big shout out to uh, to let's see, let's let's go with Rob Roy. Let's go with uh, Iwana Gorgui. Uh, let's go with Chase Darty. Let's go with um, Jane Wong. I mean, and Tony McIntyre. And uh, there's this guy that just. Joined and helped us in the last second on the streets. Like, hey, what are you guys doing filming? I want to help out. And he helped out Francisco Sandoval. Uh, thank you very much. And also for the talent. I, I think they've done such a good job. A big shout out to Ariana Valdez. She was the lead actress in this short film. And I, I'm happy to have met her. And it was interesting because I had a hard time casting that role. And by a stroke of luck, I'm like, oh, yeah. I remember talking to her briefly then that she acted and out of desperation I, I contacted her about it and sure enough she came on board and she knocked it out of the park so Ariana Valdez I you should really see her performance in this short film Gina Mateos I uh, worked with her before and I brought her along in this project as well and always a pleasure working with her and Kevin Jasper Kevin Jasper it's the first time I've worked with him and collaborated with him and he did a great job totally professional he just came in, and it's funny because it's such a small role. And Kevin Jasper is an actor who's really more involved in big productions in theater and film. But, you know, it just shows you he has a good work ethic as an actor where he's like, oh, yeah, I have a very small role with no lines, but he took it, and he made the best of it. He really did. So thank you to Kevin Jasper. Uh, Jacob Wheels, uh, he helped me immensely a lot as well uh, when it came to editing. And all around, uh, check out my new short film, Camera, available on YouTube. Just search Camera Vignette Film, my name, Jorge M. Sanchez. And it was, uh, I had a great experience filming it. And, and I'm, I re- I'm really thankful for everybody who was involved. And anybody who watched it. You know, it means a lot to me that people are out there seeing it. And uh, it's the first short uh, black and white film I've made that uh, reached 200 views in a day and a half. Man. That was something. All right. Uh, without, uh, let's move on, I guess. Um, I have a special surprise. Uh, usually I have music play for my musical guests. But today I came upon a, a special recording by a, a, a previous guest of mine. His name is Rafi Spiritu. He was on episode 21 and I've mentioned her name before because she helped me out immensely in the uh, with the short film. But she's a great friend of mine. And her name is Iwana Gugui. And she is a poet. 
And Rafi Espiritu took one of her poems and made it into a song. And it was an amazing song. And and, and I, I'm going to play it for you guys. Because I liked it. And I want to share it. And Iwana Gugui, she's just an amazing human being all around. And uh, so a big shout out to you and your poetry. And I got to get her on this podcast sometime soon. I really got to get her on here. We've got to chat about a couple things. Poetry and stuff. So I'm going to play. And it, the poem is called Find Whatever Holds You. And here is the musical interpretation of that poem by Rafi Spiritu. And then we'll head over to our conversation with uh, with Donna Steelman. Find Whatever holds you mm. Without touching you Build you Without owning you Did you Without showing you Find whatever Plants you mm-hmm. Without burying you Heals you Without judging you, expand you without fooling you. Find whatever loves you mm, without knowing you. Find you without calling you. Teachers without telling you. Oh, find. Whatever it is, wherever it dwells, do ever it lives. As long as it opens you, my baby, without breaking you. Oh, just let it kill you. Without ending you Feel you without asking you Feel it finally hurt you Without fearing you Find whatever holds you mm, yeah. Without touching you Build you without owning you So how did it work when you were younger again? So you started playwriting because you were taking care of. Yeah, I was. I'm the. I'm in the oldest of an oldest. So my mother is the oldest of five, and as the firstborn grandchild, um, the gap between me and the and the next dozen grandkids was five years. And so by the time I was ten, I was ripe for for the babysitting age of a yeah. bunch of young cousins and we lived for a while several of us lived on the same street okay and um so we you know that was a way for me to earn a little bit of money and show some responsibility and also made it really easy on my aunts and uncles to have so you really built in babysitter (laughs) do you feel like you embrace the babysitter role yeah i mean i definitely always had that kind of 
bossy leadership. I guess we call them leadership skills now. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I embraced my role in the family as the the oldest of that generation. Uh huh. Um, and how was that? It was interesting. I feel that's like, that's like a lot of pressure. <laughs> I feel like that's like. Oh my god! I gotta make sure nobody gets hurt. I gotta make sure everybody's entertained. A little bit. A I gotta little feed bit. these guys or, or kids. It's I don't know. I would lose my mind if I was in that position. You know, a little bit. I I was raised by a single mom, and so I think being in a a, a role of responsibility came early because I didn't want to add to my mom's burden by being a bad kid, so to speak. And so I took on family chores and things, helped out with making dinner when my sister was born when I was you know twelve you know, helping mom with laundry or, you know, I was, I think because I saw my mom working hard and I was also, because I was the first grandkid, I had five years where my grandmother was my primary caregiver while my mom worked. And so I was heavily influenced by the generation ahead of my mom as well. In some regards, my mom's youngest sister, who is only 13 years older than me, with my sister being 12 years younger than me, it was a very sisterly relationship. And I think I kind of mirrored my relationship with my sister down the road a lot like the relationship I had with my aunt who's since become a very good friend and she's one of those family members I would pick even if she's family by more than just blood now you know we yeah. are friends uh-huh. but we're also family fascinating so well, well, <laughs> very I'm, very big but close-knit family well, what line of work with, was your mother doing to to get the family so my mom started out like Back in the day when people had secretaries and had a steno pool and all of that and worked her way up. Into... Is this in the Bay Area, by the way? Yeah, I, I'm a Bay Area born and bred. So this is like, you know, the Mountain View, Cupertino, Sunnyvale area. Back when they still had fields. Yes, yes. <laughs> okay. Um, so my mom worked her way up from being, you know, just the average one of many secretaries in the secretarial pool uh, over the years in the Silicon Valley through the development of the computer world to a role, an executive role as like, you know, customer, she, she's gone through customer service. She's gone up through being like, you know, an executive admin. So she worked her way up simply by being kind of in the right place at the right time and willing to work. Mm-hmm. Um, Cause she didn't go to college. And so she just out of necessity to take care of me. And then ultimately my sister just started working with the skills that she had which was she was a good typer and she was very organized and had a pleasant phone presence and could interact with with you know customers and be customer facing and worked her way up into executive management. That's fascinating. <laughs> that work ethic though. It, very much so. So if we come from a family where we're working in all its types was not just exampled but expected. My grandfather was a blue collar worker. He was a machinist and went to work every day and came home kind of smelling dirty and like oil and got his hands dirty every day for me that when i smell that that feels like home to me it does it smelled like that smell of like you know kind of like oil you know like machine machine oil machine grease like smells like my grandfather coming home from work when we lived with them and you know what kind of machinery did he deal with i don't remember now um i know that he had to clean machines that some had some intricate parts and uh i only know that because at one point (laughs) he retired early because a machine that he was cleaning turned on and caught his finger in it, and he lost a finger on the job. Oh, my God. And so ended up retiring, um, I think, in his late 50s, uh-huh. um, which was really weird to me because I, I remember it was over the summer. I was at summer camp, and when I came back, it was like the big family drama was like, Grandpa lost his finger. And I came back to this massively bandaged hand to which, you know, 
when the bandages were removed, his index finger on his, you know, right hand is removed, is no longer there. And there's like a stitch. It wasn't bloody or gory or gross. And the knuckle is still there. And so he likes to like go up and like wiggle his knuckle at you. <laughs> just, oh. <laughs> it's such a grandpa thing, right? Like, he had a good just, sense of humor about yeah, it. Yeah, totally. Well, and so he was, he had uh, one of his physical therapy um, assignments was to take like, it's therapy putty, but to me it looked like silly putty. Mm-hmm. And so they gave him silly putty and had him work his hand. And so... Again, my artistic skills showing themselves early on. I took the silly putty one day and I like rolled it into like a log and like carved like a nail into it and like finger lines. Like I made him off. I fashioned a finger. Oh, for him. <laughs> so cute! Here you go, Grandpa. Uh, I made you a finger. How did he respond to that? And we all had a good laugh. And yeah. it was very odd because I, you know, the dynamic in my grandparents' home. They were heavily, very much the the patriarch and matriarch of our family. Very much heavy influencers of our family, grandpa had his role and that was to go off to go to work. Mm-hmm. And grandma had her role, which was, you know, every day of the week there was a different household chore that had to be managed or mastered. You know, grocery shopping, linens had to be done, you know, the, the vacuuming needed to be to be done. She, she ran a tight ship and he worked hard every day and it was a very kind of classic 1950s marriage and family. Um, but with a lot of love and respect and now all of a sudden grandpa was around and I think it was very irritating to grandma at first because she was yeah. like you're messing up my vibe here at home like you're underfoot like today is laundry day get up off the couch i need to like yeah. you know beat the cushions and like clean the slip covers and like you're in the way and for me i had a moment where watching my grandfather drive because if we were going anywhere if grandpa was around he always drove and if he wasn't around then my grandmother and my mother would drive but if grandpa was around he drove and he drove his car what kind of car was it? I don't remember now. It always felt like a boat to me. I mean, it just uh, was uh, like boats? a big, it just was one of those big, probably ni- you know, late 1970s, early 1980s, boxy cars. Uh-huh. Probably something nice that I had no appreciation of. Like it a- just felt like, like a land cruiser. It was this huge yacht of a car. But I'm watching him drive, and it was uh, that moment as a child where, for the very first time, um, my grandfather, although they got cleaned up and put on their Sunday best on Sundays when we would go to church, I had never seen my grandfather's fingernails completely free of dirt, completely uh-huh. clean. Like, you know, I mean, he was not a dirty person, but he just, you know, he worked with his hands. And so yeah. his hands were rough and, you know, there was always, you know, a, he brought that kind of that engine or that machine oil home and it gets everywhere and it gets embedded in your pores. And I was, I remember looking at his hands and being like, wow. I've never seen grandpa's hands so clean. <laughs> and it was like, wow. To me, that was like that moment of like, wow, yeah, he really isn't going to work anymore. He's really, something's you, different. <laughs> how do you take it? That, that's got to be tough though. Because my, my grandfather also was hardworking. And I remember in his later years before he passed away, it was tough for him to not be able to really move or work in the garden as much as active as he did, was before. So I know it was hard for him in the beginning. In the beginning, he, I don't think he knew what, knew what to do with himself. And he ended up actually coming to a couple of my school functions as a chaperone, which was odd because that was never a possibility before. So it was kind of a treat for me. But I think for him, it was maybe a little bit more than he anticipated having a car full of, you know, 10 or 11 year olds that are like. So in some ways, it brought him closer to his grandchildren. And for sure, it certainly gave him and grandma an opportunity to visit, you know, they ha- they come from the, the the south. They were born, they were both born and raised in Missouri. So I think they did a little bit of traveling, um, and I think ultimately they had they had purchased he had purchased them a home in Mountain View, um, coming out of the army with the GI Bill that helped the assistance that was offered to him 
back in the day when Mountain View was still fields. And by the time they moved... Was he part of the World War II? Uh, Korean, War. Korean, the Korean War. Korean War. Okay. Um, so uh, they bought their home in Mountain View before Mountain View was... Even a town. Mountain View. It was Mountain View, but it was not like today we think, ooh, Mountain View, you know? Right, right. And so by the time they, you know, sold their home, because he retired early, they sold their home for a decent amount of money and bought some land up in uh, Northern California in a little town called Happy Valley. Um, kind of, I think it's south. I could be wrong. I think it's south of Redding. And then they moved up there for a while, and they kind of retired into the country, which suited them both. And, you know... Um, his retirement did um, generate one really fun story in that um, because he started working really young and grew up very poor in the South, he never had an occasion to learn to ride a bike because he had never had an occasion to have a bike oh. because he's the like f- fifth or sixth of 10 children who grew up really, really poor. And it right. was like... You get the last of everything. Yeah, it, it, you get the last of it. Or it's like if you even get a bike, right? Like you've got two good feet. Why would I go buy you a bike if you know we're Depression era kids in the you know, in, in, you know, the South. And so my grandmother taught my grandfather how to ride a bike at like age 60 something. He was 62. And I I knew, I knew, I remember the story because I, I, you know, we traveled up for the summer and my, my, at that, by that time, my sister was born. My sister and I stayed with him for a couple of weeks in the summer. And I'm looking at my grandpa and I'm like, why are your knees all skinned? He's wearing shorts and he's like, I fell off my bike. And I'm like, when were you on a bike? And my grandmother's like in the kitchen howling with laughter, like he fell off his bike when I was teaching him to ride. <laughs> He's a sixty-year-old guy. Yeah, and my grandmother was Shiloh was very you know spicy, sassy, tenacious, you know, and so took an endless amount of pleasure in the fact that she kind of like she knew a thing he didn't know, and like, yeah. kind of one-upped him. She definitely kept him on his toes. He she was definitely the uh, the spice I think in his life. He pretended, I think, sometimes not to like it as much as he did. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure there's a creative gene in there, right? Um, I would say I, I probably growing up didn't think that there was one. And in hindsight, um, I think my grandmother's creativity probably showed itself in comedy a lot more than I appreciated. Oh, so. Along the lines of like Lucille Ball, which was oh. I think in hind- like she and I would watch that show together growing up when she was. I love Lucy. Me. I love Lucy, yeah. and I it, loved that it, show. Even by today's standards, the, the comedy in that it's yes. still like it, it's irrelevant in a lot of ways. Right, exactly. So, um, in hindsight, the joy that she got out of watching Lucille Ball be Lucy, and. Um, remembering how heartily she would laugh at just any occasion to laugh at anything silly. She was big with the grandkids because, you know, potty humor was right up her alley. Really? Physical humor. She wasn't afraid to, like, actually go out and play with the kids, like, get on her bike, ride to the park with you, put on roller skates, be on all fours in the kitchen pretending that, you know, your aunt or whatever. She was she was she was truly my first not just my first caregiver but my first playmate like she was definitely that and she was that for all the grandkids as they came up and so I think like physical comedy was probably a creative outlet that I didn't recognize as being a creative thing as a child I just thought she was fun Mm -hmm. but in hindsight I can see there was definitely a there was a thing there yeah there was a creative thing there yeah that's that's mom she just walked in do you need to talk to mom No, no I don't think so Okay. <laughs> I, I, I heard her say my name, but okay. she, as soon as she saw you, she's like, oh, he's busy. Okay. 
But speaking so, of families, you know, yeah. I wouldn't want you to be in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, and then um, then your mom, she was a, uh, a writer. No, my mom. Um, I don't. I would have to think. I would say my my mom and my sister both have a certain gift that I don't have, which is funny, being a visual artist, being a painter. They're both really good um, at um, like home decor stuff. Like they always present well as hostesses. Like they, you know, their house which always is, looks good. Which is it's a, a performance in itself. A really. little bit, right? When you're hosting a party, especially. Home always felt very inviting, and I was I never felt uncomfortable bringing my friends over. And my mom was always on me because like you're so messy. Like I have to shut your door when I bring people over. And now I'm like, well, I, I can relate to that. I'm I'm a messy artist. Like my, my, my room is way in the back for a reason. <laughs> exactly. I'm like my my room is kind of a reflection of like the chaos in my head that I'm trying to like you know creatively figure out what goes where. My mom and my sisters' gift is that that kind of final presentation. They're very presentation oriented. Now what? <laughs> Where do you think you deviated from that presentation? Why why do you feel there was some chaos in 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 your life, at, it, le at least in your room? And why do you feel? I don't know. I think it's interesting that when someone's different in their family, I, that that's gotta come from somewhere. I I, I absolutely it has to come from somewhere. I really think that part of why, even at a at a young age, you know, like I'm a grown up now. I have an apartment. I live on my own, and it's not, it's not a mess. I would have people over. But it's not, it's just, it's eclectic. Like my, my sense of style and my paintings and what, what I have hanging on my walls and what I, what I have, like I have, I have an easel and, and paints in my living room. My mother and my sister would be horrified if I moved in with them and like was like, and this is where my easel lives. Cause this is the biggest room in the house where it gets the best light. And this is where the easel, and they'd be like, that's not pretty. Like that's not, that's not a good presentation. That should go be in the back somewhere. Mm. Um, but I think part of my deviation from that was at a young age because my parents separated when I was really young and I was kind of this ultra responsible mini adult kind of the adult of my generation in the family yeah and I think because I was trying to be a good good kid and I I was trying to uh trying to not create more burden for my mom or the rest of the family of that strong work ethic for me, the place where things had something had to give was that creative space in my brain, which then bled into my own personal space, which was my room. Was that the, in all of this order that I feel like that pressure to maintain behind the behind the curtain, there has to be an allowance for chaos and disorder. And from that, the creativity I think bloomed in that kind of petri dish petri dish of mess and chaos that. I wasn't really showing the rest of the world. It was kind of a behind the scenes thing. Mm. And when did creativity first came into your life? My mom says really young. My mom says that I was, you know, I had, you know, I was coloring and whatnot at a young age. I, I definitely, um, <laughs> because I was an only child for a while and you didn't even have cousins until I was five. Uh, I had huge imaginative playtime with my dolls and my you know action figures and Barbies and Legos I was constantly building 
like not just like here's Barbie's house, but like here's Barbie's village, and like this is everyone's role, and everyone's. I was building like this whole world, and then I would like my mom would hear me like talking to myself, which was really just me talking, acting things out with my dolls, right. which clearly you know, progressed into me, you know, using my cousins as I, you know, made them become the players and the, the plays that I was, you know, the stories I was inventing, inventing in my head that once upon a time, you know, came, came to fruition in my toys. As soon as I had live players, I transitioned into that and was like, you, you're going to do this thing and you're going to do this thing. So you, you really did become a, a playwright. At really young age. And yeah. I, I didn't, I don't think I realized I was, I was, telling stories and I think I was telling them to myself I think that was part of self-entertainment as I was telling myself stories with my imagination creating worlds and universes to maybe just even cope with some of the adult things going on in my world mm. you know parents divorcing at an early age in a messy divorce a I, complicated I, relationship do you still keep in touch with your father? I do t- keep in touch with my father it is you know, sometimes a challenging relationship, but there's a lot of love there now. But that had to evolve in my adulthood. It was a strained relationship and a strange relationship to me as a child. When was the moment where it, you were like, all right, obviously there's flaws here, but there's a positive <laughs> change here? I actually, um, old, much old and later in life, when I was in my 20s, um, my early 20s I got married for the first time and I didn't tell my dad I was engaged and I got married and I moved wait away. hold on what's the story there whoa, whoa, whoa. you got married at 20 at 23 24 I was married the first time at 20 almost 24 and what was going on like how'd you meet him well, who's this? we were old school snail mail pen pals I had written in a short story to a magazine and in the back of it like when, when they say like oh we've accepted your story and we're gonna publish it um if you'd like to like be available for other readers or other writers to communicate with you, you know, give us permission to, to like, you know, connect you with other readers. And so he was someone who liked what I had written and we became pen pals. And so so you guys were long distance. I was in California and he was in Connecticut. Super wow. long distance. Wow. <laughs> and through mail. Through the mail. Through like, the not mail. like email, not texting, like snail mail, like yeah, 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 lick yeah. a stamp and put it on the you envelope. Have to invest in stamps. You know, and I got to say, because I, you know, I, I, sadly, you know, that was my first marriage. And so at one point I, you know, stopped being married to him. But I still do have, you know, I, I have a hope chest and I do have, I'm, I'm such an old soul and such a, you know, I have a penchant for being a romantic. I have that collection of letters I have actual handwritten letters from my first husband as we were courting each other so to speak Uh you know that I still have tucked away and there is something to be said about taking the time to write words down for someone else to read and to interpret them and interpret them and not like immediately delete them or like you know you know it doesn't just go away it's not just flat there's something that you're holding on to it has you know, it has an essence to it. It has a tangibility to it. Uh-huh. And that, that you save and ages as you age. Like, some of those letters are older now. And it's just, there is something kind of pseudo-romantic about it, even though it, the relationship didn't stand the it, test of time. Because <laughs> it, it, you come from an old-school fam- family. I do come from an old-school so, family. So how do they take this uh, news that, that you found someone in Connecticut and that you're, you're, about, you're engaged? Uh, you know, it's funny. Early on in our correspondence, um, 
we because I didn't know what he looked like for the first couple of months because we're because be, we're writing wow. right like yeah. this, this is not like you know swipe left swipe right this is not like online dating right <laughs> let me look at your like 14 pictures and decide if you're worthy of my conversation this is someone who read something that I put out into the world decided that that captured his attention enough to want to at least know who this other person on the planet was who then shared a bit of his soul and his self in his letters and so for the first i would say probably four or five letters back and forth which takes time to go across the country um we didn't know what each other looked like and i think we're both a little bit nervous about putting a picture in an envelope and mailing it to the other person and yeah. like waiting to see like they don't like me. Uh -huh. um, and when I finally got the letter with his picture in it, and I just thought he was super cute. And, I, and you know, part of it, for sure, I was already influenced by thinking that he was a beautiful person without knowing what he looked like anyway, just by the power of his written words. Mm -hmm. um, and so I remember I had this picture of him, and I was at my mom's house, and I think I told my grandmother, I'm like, I met this guy and we're writing letters to each other and I think I'm going to marry him. And this is like wave of like, <laughs> there was no like phone conversation yet. There was no like, I love you yet. Right. I was just, I had just decided. You just knew it. I'm going to go try and make this happen. <laughs> With like no real power to do that. Right. In fact, our first phone conversation back in the day when I had an apartment in Sacramento, I was going to Sac State and, uh, I had a I back when people still had answering machines because we didn't all have cell phones yet. They were mm -hmm. kind of still of a new. So this was like mid nineties. <sighs> yeah, when did we get married? Yeah, like mid, yeah, like early, early to mid nineties. What were you studying in Sac? Sac State. I was a double major of U.S. history and ethnic studies. Okay. Wow. And I have an associate's degree from De Anza that is in intercultural studies. My my concentration was in Native American studies, and I lived on a reservation for a time, and that oh. involves a different boy. That's a different story. <laughs> oh my God! I want to go there. We may have to go there, but <laughs> okay, I'm going to write that one down. Reservation. Yeah. Um, I'm just kidding. Yeah. So, because I still had an answering machine and I didn't have a cell phone, I think I put something on my outgoing. I he had written me that he was going to try and call me, uh -huh. and um, I put on my outgoing answering machine like. Hi, this is Donna. Leave a message after the beep. And if this is Dan from Connecticut, let me know what time you're calling next. I'm sorry I missed your call. Like, just complete desperation of, like, just trying to, like, connect the dots. Old, you know, old school, very low tech, right. trying to connect with one another. <laughs> 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 like, super cool. <laughs> but but at, at, at the end of the day, you guys did meet. You guys got married. We and, did. And, we, we... and after a while, I guess it didn't work out, huh? Yeah, sadly it didn't work out. It it was really a very a very sweet first love and um I don't regret the marriage or the relationship at all. He was he's actually the reason I started painting. He is the one that caused me to deviate from the written word to paintings because he was a painter. He was an he was at the time that we met, he was going to school to become an elementary school art teacher and getting his teaching credential in Connecticut, but he was an artist in his own right. And so I was in a home with him, like his wedding gift to me was a portrait that he painted of the two of us. It was very romantic and over the top and lovely and wonderful and all the feels. But I was in this home where I was writing and he was painting and over time I would go to these art shows with him and he'd be like, I have extra canvas. Like, here's a canvas for you if you're just, if you want to do something. Wait, did, but did you guys move, did you move to Connecticut? I moved to Connecticut. You moved to Connecticut. We got married in California and our honeymoon, we drove across the country as our honeymoon. 
so that we could be because he was getting credentialed for for, for Connecticut for for okay. being a teacher, and so it didn't make sense. That, for that him itself to come is a here. weird change, right? So that by itself was you know as a as a Cali girl like seeing four distinct seasons, you know, and winter is long. <laughs> Too long. For someone who grew up with a lot of sunshine and not a lot of humidity, winter was long and summer was horrible. But the first snowflakes that you see in real life, you know, are like, oh, it's snowing, yay. And you don't realize, like, okay, like two weeks from now, that snow is going to turn brown and live on the side of the road forever. Uh But the first year there was very magical. Um, But I started painting because I lived in this very artistic house with him. And my very first paintings a lot of times were versions of my writing or poetry or words from my 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 own stuff that I was putting on the canvas as as words or trying to paint what I had written mm-hmm. and I, to some degree I still do that with my paint a lot of my paintings often now still have words they've become more refined in my painting and my my skills with the canvas have become more refined but he's the reason that I started started painting mm-hmm. and like you said sadly that marriage uh, did long, not last how long you guys were married almost five just short of five years yeah okay and then uh, I think the root of the, the where this came from was was uh, you, you you did not tell your father that you got married, which to a lot of fathers that's a big deal. So yeah, so I didn't I didn't tell my dad I got engaged, and I didn't tell my dad I moved across the country, and I didn't speak to my father for five years. I kind of was at a place where some of the history that was there, and some of the some of the chaos, and some of the frustration and that kind of strange and strained relationship came to came to a head where I just decided I'm starting this new life with this new person and I just I don't see you fitting into it and so I I excised my father from That's my life for a time. A hard decision to make. It was a hard decision to make. Um but I think ultimately the reason that he and I are able to get on the phone or send emails back and forth and that that I look at him and I can say I I really do love him even though I don't always understand him and it's never going to be a perfect relationship. But the fact that there's a relationship at all was because I did make the very hard choice to walk away for a time mm-hmm. and grow as a person. And then when when my marriage ended and I came back to California, I did reach out to my dad. I think I actually called him for the first time after five years on Christmas Day to just say, hey, Merry Christmas. I'd like to be back in your life. How did that go? So, he was very... he so. He was able to reach me via my mom. My mom became the in-between. If he wanted to write me or needed to leave me a message, he could relate. My mom, so your mom extended is... herself to him. Okay. And, you know, my stepmother, my dad's wife, is actually really love. I'm actually, I have a lot of love for her. She's a, a wonderful woman and a blessing What, what line of work is, is your father in? So my dad's um, also retired. Um, my dad, uh, growing up, my dad was also someone that worked with his hands. He was a roofer. And so mm-hmm. kind of that smell of like tar, roof tar or asphalt, like wet else, wet, wet asphalt is one of my favorite smells. Yeah, It smells too. like school and growing up and to some yeah. degree that like that, that tar smell smells like my dad. And in a good way, a fond memory of yeah. my dad, my dad working in the hot sun. Um, he fell off of a roof when he was, when he was doing commercial work and really mangled his shoulder. Oh no. Oh. And had to have like pins put in it and stuff. And that caused him to, I, I believe, go on disability and... I don't think it was a full retirement, but he chose, he took that time. He was here in California um, for a time. He then, I think, briefly moved to Arkansas where his, his parents were, and then ultimately it landed in Arizona, and that's where he and his current wife are living. But he went to Arizona, and he he went back to school, and he went back to school for what he had been studying 
at San Jose State years and years and years ago. Which was? Um, geriatrics and working with older adults and people oh. with special needs. And so he went for a time he worked uh, at a facility in a small town in Arizona for like people who are adults who have been institutionalized for basically so their whole seem, life. It seems like he went through a transition himself. He went through a transition himself. Picked himself and, up, kind of, I guess. Yeah, he just put himself on a different track. And then for a while, that led him into casework and um, working in the prison system. That's actually, he's just now getting ready to retire because he was in a pretty bad accident in February. He's fine now. But it's finally time, I think, for him to retire. But he's been working in the prison system as a case manager for nonviolent offenders for a long time. And I'm sure going through all that and seeing all that hardship, he, I'm sure he appreciated you a lot more than before. I think the, um, for some, for sure, to some degree, you know, seeing other people missing out on their family relationships has certainly um, given him an appreciation. Um, but I think those five years where I kind of just stepped away and just said, you know, I, he, he was a little bit of a, He's a, he's a force, right? He's a he's a very forceful person. Forceful. Um, and very de- a little bit demanding. At least bef- b- prior to me walking out of his life, you know, there was a measure of demanding, and and because he was kind of this big person in my world that I didn't really understand, it was easy to feel uncomfortable, or you know, I don't know that I want to go so far as to say afraid, but certainly uncomfortable with, and so it was easy to just comply with whatever he wanted. And and I was, again, that whole, like, wanting to be obedient and wanting to be respectful and, like, that that kind of, that person I was projecting as a, as a young adult of, like, you know, you do what you're told and you work hard. And that included even with a relationship that I didn't quite understand with my dad. And so when he would make demands, I would always try to comply. And not telling him that I was engaged and not letting him be a part of my wedding and not letting him be a part of my life for five years was the biggest loudest possible way that I could send them the message that I'm my own person I'm living my own life Mm -hmm. and I think he needed to see me as someone to talk to not talk at and to you know ask me about things instead of telling me things you know, he's a parent, and all parents and kids still, you know, that struggle is always kind of there it's to some weird. degree. Yeah, I, I totally <laughs> can relate to that. You know, I think some parents forget that their kids are humans, are people. Right. You know, in some ways, they think there's a sense of ownership. Like A little bit. You know sure, what I'm saying? It's sure. like, you're, you're a part of me, therefore, you know, I tell you this and that. I don't have to explain myself. And I think that that can be really difficult as a kid because you're processing all this stuff, and you're soaking right. it up, and right. you... Like, I can totally relate to that um, in a sense that uh, why not just tell me like a normal person what you want exactly and it was interesting like that relationship developed with my dad where he definitely kind of had that sense of ownership it was, it was very hard it was very hard for me to say no to him and so walking away from that relationship was really hard and you know as he's getting older and as he's starting to worry about you know going into his golden years you know he there are things he worries about and I'm like I'm in, I'm in such a different place in my life where I'm trying to like professionally grow and I'm creatively trying to grow and sometimes it's like dad I just I need you to give me a little bit of space to just be the adult right now I know that you have your concerns and your needs which is an interesting contrast for my relationship with my mom who has always been nothing but supportive even if not always understanding my creative outlets um, mm-hmm. certainly been a, a, a fan and appreciative in her own way um, 
she you know she will tell you that she doesn't always get what my paintings are about and she generally thinks my writing is very good and has always appreciated and, and allowed me to read to her but rather than having that sense of ownership it's kind of I think for her the, the relationship has developed into I don't know where this came from so you just <laughs> go be you <laughs> you're like she do what often, you do yeah she's kind of, she tells me often she's like you're my like independent child that just kind of needs to just go out just stay out of your way yeah. just go do what you're gonna if, do if, if I don't get it if but if go anything, do it just stay in the back <laughs> pretty much just you know if you're gonna make a mess shut the door <laughs> which is kind of you know I'm harkening back to my childhood where it was like yeah. if you're not gonna make your bed at least shut the door <laughs> So how was your evolution of cre- of your creative writing? Like you started playwriting, obviously when you, you were directing your your cousins. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, uh, very uh, rudimentary, so but yes. And, and, and you just uh, you mentioned that you were published. I've I've been published a couple. So I published a short story in a magazine, and then I have a poem that was published in a women's anthology years ago, back when I was living in Connecticut, and still. But when did you start writing these short stories and poems? That took off more in college. It definitely started. Um, writing more in college and was doing that in college when I met my first husband and then um that was a very that union our marriage was a very creative one and so there was a lot of time spent writing you know in the same room where my husband would be painting you know and I have very fond memories of the sound of brushes and you know brushes full of paint moving on canvas as kind of the rhythm to my scribbling in my notepads and they kind of complemented each other they're kind of the sounds of our lives kind of thing you know you know know, like it it sounds romantic and everything but you know i I was in a long relationship with with a painter as well she was she was an artist and we were living in berkeley i actually being with another creative person for me at least was both a great thing but the hard thing too sure you know sure 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 because we both have our creative flaws in our personalities. Yep. And there are times where like, what do you mean by that? What do you mean you didn't like this part of my yes, story? Yes, the critique from someone that close to you yeah. can cut very deep. Well, well, that close and talented. Yes, exactly. Because yes. it, it could come off like kind of like intimidating. Almost. Very much so, especially because, especially as I started painting and he certainly... In our household, he certainly would be the master painter, and I would be, you know, just you know, the the student, to so so to speak. Um, but even like with my writing, he didn't, you know, he never really got into writing. But when you know someone that well, um, when you delve into their creative expression and you try and like dissect it and peel back the layers of that creative onion, so to speak, it starts to feel really raw and naked, right? And mm-hmm. so I found that getting critiques from him much harder than getting critiques from the writing community I was in in Connecticut or the artist community that we both kind of circled in. Like I could take a critique from another painter or another artist or another writer with so much more grace and confidence and really hear the critique than like for him to be like, I don't, I don't know what you're trying to say with that poem. Like, I'm just be like, oh my god, you're so mean. You're a horrible person. Like, because it just it cuts, right? Yeah, you're it like, does. You're supposed to be on my <laughs> side, and it, it it you know it almost feels like an attack. Even right. it was without you know no intention of that, right. but it's easy in to misinterpret hindsight, that. It's not, but but like at the time, at that moment, you're like, oh my god. Because someone critiques you outside of the relationship, you're like, well, fuck them, whatever. But, or, you know, but this is some, someone you, you have a relationship with. It's like, and, and you just stay up all night thinking like, what does she mean by that? What, why, what, what's wrong with my protagonist? What's wrong with my character? Who, who, who is she? She's just a painter. What does she know about writing? Right. And, and before easy, you, yeah, and before I know it, you wake up in the morning and, and we're eating breakfast and we're like, so did you really mean this the other night? And she's like, I, I, totally I don't forgot even about remember it. what I said exactly. at this point. And you're like, ah, 
<laughs> is it just me? Is, is it us? No, it no, just... that happens for sure, for sure. Like there is something really beautiful about relationships, successful relationships between two creative people. I clearly, you know, that that relationship ended and it didn't end because of our creative differences or anything, but we definitely had those moments of like creative brilliance Mm -hmm. kind of sparking off of one another because you're in this creative household. And it is nice to be with someone who appreciates the creative process, which in all of its facets, everything from I have to stop what I'm doing right now and like scribble this thought down before it leaves my head or it's two o'clock in the morning and he's like, I, I had a spark of inspiration. I had to go into the studio and start painting. You don't understand. Like, when you're with a creative person, I think you get grace for some of that side of the creative process. But there's definitely those moments where those that those critiques or those it's not not even competition is not the right word. Just close proximity. It's almost like too much yeah, <laughs> creative yeah. energy. I hear you. If it's not once it stops going in the same direction. Yeah. It becomes a little messy. Right. So that can be difficult to navigate. And it's hard because I think a lot of creative creative people, you grow with your creativity. Right. And I think you grow in, in a much expedient uh, speed than most people as mm-hmm. a person. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, for at least for, in my side of the relationship, I think that's what happened with us. We just grew apart because we, we were both reaching out different phases in our creativity. And, you know. We ultimately grew apart. Um, so w- when I was living out there, I was a really heavy person. You know, I was pushing, you know, was past 350 pounds. And we were both fat and happy together. And he was a big guy and I was a big girl. And I got really sick and ultimately developed congestive heart failure. And was, Wait, what does that mean? So my heart <clears throat> became damaged. The muscles of my heart became permanently damaged. And it stopped functioning properly. Um, I kept going to the emergency room because I kept feeling like I was having panic attacks and I couldn't breathe. It presented as almost a respiratory issue. Yeah. Like my breathing was labored. Um, and it wasn't until the the pulmonary specialist sent me to have a scan done that to look at because the x-rays didn't show anything of my lungs. And so I finally had a scan done of my chest. And thankfully, the technician who was responsible for reading and deciphering the scan noticed her lungs are fine but the sac around her heart the peritoneal sac around her heart is full of fluid and her heart is enlarged and it's not functioning and so my resting heart rate i was finally admitted to the hospital um and on the day that i was admitted to the hospital my resting heart rate was like 125 beats per minute wow which is like someone yeah. running really Probably like much. working hard yeah um and my breathing was short and labored and but my blood pressure was very very low and um, when your heart contracts, you you get something called your ejection fraction, which is the percentage of blood and fluids that passes as it enters, as it creates that circuit for your circulatory system. Blood and fluid enter the heart chambers, it contracts, and it flushes them out the other side. And you never get a hundred percent ejection fraction. That would be weird and create a, a vacuum within the chambers of your heart. Um, but you want a minimal amount, like average, healthy average is between fifty and seventy percent ejection fraction percent when i was in the hospital they did an echocardiogram which is basically a sonogram for my heart and um, at the time of admittance my ejection fraction the amount of blood actually managing to get through with each contraction of my heart was down to 10 percent which means not enough blood and fluid was really getting to my body and in particular to my brain because i started having some some days and moments of confusion yeah and at one point one of the 
one of the people in the, in the ER was like, we don't really know why you're walking around. Like, we're not really sure how you're still cognitive right now. <laughs> we're going to lay you down. <laughs> we're not sure how you're even alive. Yeah, they're like, because basically, like, if you imagine a heart contracting, like, ba-boom, ba-boom, ba-boom. Mine, mine was kind of fluttering, like, bum, 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 because, and that's why my resting heart rate was so high, because the, each contraction with, you know, each contraction was ineffectual, because mm. it wasn't a true contraction. And so to, to this day, you know, we're... 15 years post-diagnosis um, and radical lifestyle changes, um, my heart is still slight, slightly enlarged. It is not as enlarged as it once was, but it's always going to be slightly enlarged. And the muscles to my heart are permanently damaged. So I take heart medication every day. But in that moment, from the time that I got out of the hospital after you know diagnosis, getting on medication, getting assigned a cardiologist, figuring out what was wrong with me, that's where my life went one way and my husband didn't take that journey with me. Mm. Um, you know, I started going to the gym a lot. I actually, first of, first I went to physical therapy, met with a dietitian, met with a physical therapist, met with a pharmacist, kind of got my, you know, cardio education on. And then I remember the first time I had to join a gym in my life, I was 28 years old, overweight and afraid that I was going to die. And I, um, did that alone. He didn't join with me, um, for whatever reasons. He, he, he was still working. I was at that point on disability, and that became the thing that I did during the day, while he went to work. And it was lonely, and it felt very. I felt very alone doing it. Um, I sat. I sat in the car for ten minutes, kind of working up the nerve to walk into this first fitness facility that I ever walked into. And I, I chose a Jewish community center, not because I'm Jewish or anything, but because it was a family center. Mm -hmm. And when I walked in, and it was the people there were so lovely. Um, some of the first personal trainers I ever worked with, some of the first fitness people I ever knew um, were just really lovely. And it wasn't like meat markety, and it wasn't like, hey, you know, let's go be muscle heads together. It was, it, I felt invited to be a part of that world, even though I was really nervous and new and didn't know anything or how any of the machines worked. Um, and so I radically started changing my diet and started exercising and embracing a different lifestyle. And that is truly that moment where our, our marital life took a divided. Mm. And we were both so young and we were, you know, still in our twenties mm -hmm. and we had been wanting to start a family at that point. We had been married for, you know, about four and a half years at that point or four years. And, um, because of my heart condition, I can't have kids now, um, because my heart couldn't sustain pregnancy. When you get pregnant, your blood volume doubles. And so that was the first heartbreak and the first major crack in the marriage. He really wanted kids and I wasn't going to be able to provide them to him. And we discussed adoption, but he was adopted and having his own biological children was just important to him. Yeah. And coupled with my radical lifestyle change, my radical physical change and my eating habits. And like, I kind of got a little too into it. Like I was going to the gym maybe as, as I was filling my life. Cause it was, it was literally life and death for you. It was life and death. And then because I think, because I was doing it on my own, like I think I was filling some of that void of feeling that, that relationship that I had with him start to change and separate. And so to fill that separation, that feeling of separation, I was filling my life with time spent at the gym where I didn't have to think about. And you were writing throughout this whole time? Or do you feel that you had to I stop was, that? I stopped for a little while, but I did write 
about some of it. I actually started, um, I painted about it a little bit later. I did some, some painting, some kind of emotion, emotional pur purging through painting as I, cause I, I, it was clear our marriage was failing. We separated, I moved home and home to California. And then we divorced very soon thereafter. Like the divorce process began. Like we just totally ir irreconcilable differences. What he wanted out of life, the, the woman he married, I truly wasn't anymore. Hmm. Um, and, and my life continued to evolve at that point. I actually, I became a person who works in the fitness industry now because of my experience with my heart, with my heart kind of crapping out on me. And I have worked in corporate health and wellness programming and um, teaching and training and doing fitness in a corp the corporate environment um, because I truly understand what it is to feel unsuccessful in your body, what it, what it is to feel afraid of walking into the fitness center for the first time. And so my, when I am running a fitness center, when I'm offering a class or when I'm offering like a lecture, I always tell people, if I could do this, anyone could do this. And everyone is invited to the party because I was invited to a, to a thing that was new and scary to me. Mm -hmm. And I certainly don't ever want someone to feel like they have to sit in their car for 10 minutes while they decide if they can walk into the gym. That's stupid. Everybody's wanted here. Everybody's welcome here. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with anybody's body. Just come in and join the party. I and myself got to get through that. I, I can't walk into a gym. <laughs> yeah, I you have to change your thinking. I, I freak out going to San Francisco. Everybody's fit in San Francisco. And I'm like, I can't, I can't go in that city. Everybody's like too like athletically built. Everybody's dressed up. I can't do this. It's, it's like <laughs> a gym. Way too much, way too much pressure on yourself. You, you have to live the life you're living. Right. You know. And there are lots of people I'm sure who look at what you do and like this podcasting and making mm -hmm. movies and writing and think I can't possibly do that. That's just oh, a sure skill. They can. But see, but see, and that's how the people at the gym be like. They're like, of course you can come in here. Yeah. We are so hard on ourselves. Um. Creatively, though, you know, that kind of got me into when I was in starting from when I was in the hospital, I was in the hospital for nine days and my hospital bed, like I kept bugging all the nurses, like, can I get like a medical book? Like, I want like, how, what are the different parts of my heart? Like, it truly was like, know thy enemy kind of an education. And I had my husband bring me my sketch pad and my color pencils. And so like my whole hospital bed had all these pictures of like dissected hearts and like heart chambers and like, you know, arrows of like, this is what this ventricle is and this is your aorta. And like, cause all things I didn't know, like I hadn't, didn't have a strong anatomy background. And so like my hospital bed was like all covered in like sketches. And, um, so hearts continue to have a theme in my paintings and to this day, to this day, always probably will, because it's, it is symbolic of emotional process and change, which as a human being, we all have had some measure of heartache. And if you haven't, I would probably say go out and go out and do more. Yeah. Get out there. We, we need, we need Fall to love, have, get heartbroken. Yes. Well, we need, we need the valleys in order to appreciate the peaks, right? Uh -huh. You can't appreciate the view from the top of the mountain if you've never been down in the valley. Fuck, that's beautiful. <laughs> so I feel like I want to write that somewhere. I want to hang that. that up. Yeah, but that, you know, the true thing, and 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 that that's a theme. Lots of writers have have written about that. Um, but to me, so like the heart represents, you know, a lot of times heartache or feelings or strong emotions, and for me, it ties back into a very very physical and literal metamorphosis and change in my life. Um, I used to speak for the American Heart Association and tell people about my story and speak to them about heart health. And one of the things that I tell people is heart disease was both the worst thing that ever happened to me 
and the best thing that ever happened to me. It absolutely played a role in the ending of my first rela- my first marriage, um, but it also absolutely transformed my life and the path of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and as a creative person, I think it's always interesting. <sighs> we get so caught up on an idea of, I want this piece of writing, or I want this poem to go this certain way, or I want this painting to go a certain way. And it's when you kind of let go and let it be what it needs to be and even where it's like, I don't really know where I'm going with this poem right now, and this might all get crumpled up and thrown in the garbage. Yeah. Even that has has a purpose and helps drive that creative journey that you're on. Like when I'm there so much with painting in particular, I'm painting and I'm thinking, oh, this is going to be amazing. I have such a vision for this painting. And then like you go and you do something to it and you're like, I think I kind of screwed this up. <laughs> I might need to start over. That's how I feel about every film I make. It's but like, then, but you have to kind of get through it. But then, but it it, it reroutes your process, it does. and then before it you does. know it, you get where you needed to go, which might not have been where you thought you were going. Exactly. Yeah. And and so creatively, I think that whole journey, that whole the process of the journey, in both life and in your creative outlets, is sometimes you just have to stop trying to drive the bus and just sit down and enjoy the ride. <laughs> <laughs> so how was it coming back after all that ordeal? You come back and you have to start over. Oh, I where, went where right did you start? In, <laughs> well, um, that is when I started my journey into the fitness world, which was a great thing. And I, you know, started, uh, I was like the front desk girl that would like greet you and say, hi, welcome to the gym. Because I was working really part time, like one day or evening a week because I was still on disability. And... Um, I, I have a family member who my aunt I spoke about earlier who I'm really close to my mom's youngest sister has been in fitness forever and she's kind of like this tiny little short blonde haired firecracker who's like yay let's all go to the gym and we're like shut the fuck up <laughs> 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 get the fuck out of here no auntie nobody wants <laughs> to go to the gym nobody wants to go to the gym with you go away but she kind of became my mentor and I ended up working for her and with her over the years and she's still a a colleague and a profession a professional person that I look up to and admire and that relationship our professional relationship is utterly separate from our familial relationship like when when we're in work mode we're in work mode and she's definitely my mentor um but she um I was visiting her um and I was visiting her gym and she went to she was like I have a part of this part of my roommates having this friends having this crab feed you should just come just come be social as I'm like still licking my wounds on my not quite completed divorce. And so she is the reason that I met my second husband, who I'm also not married to anymore. Oh no. <laughs> I kind of went from the frying pan to the fire in that um, I kind of met the guy that should have been the rebound guy. And instead of rebounding off of him, I just married him. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and I didn't know I was being stupid at the time, but it became very self-evident. That marriage didn't last more than 18 months. and. Uh, how'd you meet him at that party he was the host of the crab feed my yeah. aunt literally took me to his house wow <laughs> we that's left hard we I, yeah see, see, once you get off a long-term relationship you should stay away from and that's so easy yeah. to say and when it's you've done easy. it yeah. it's it's so easy to preach to other people and be like oh yeah. man give yourself some time give yourself some yeah. space yeah. and when you're especially when you're in a relationship that has gone up and down and up and down and finally ended yeah when it ends and you take that breath uh-huh. You feel so great that you're like, no, nah, I'm good. I'm going to get out there. I'm going to meet someone. I don't need any time. I don't need, you know, because you don't know. Your, your head's still spinning. Yeah. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, it doesn't have to be long time either. It just has to be like a very deep uh, heartbreak. Take a look at yourself. Yeah. 
Like I went, I'm, I'm going through a heartbreak myself, and I was like, oh, I'm so sorry. and and when you were coming, you're asking if I, if I went out. I was like, no, I've been out of the scene because uh-huh. I don't want to fall into that trap either. Because right now, like my my emotional survival mode is find someone else to love. Right, right. Because you have all these feelings and no right. place to put them. Exactly, <laughs> and it, and it's like it doesn't work like that. Exactly. You know, what I'm saying exactly. it, it, love comes when you least expect it. You should not be looking for it. So that's why everyone says. That's why, I'm, I, that's why I'm hiding in this cave for a while and just right. incubating. Right. Like, all right. Right. Uh, hence the beard. You know? uh, it looks good though. It looks really <laughs> but, good. But uh, but I totally get what you're saying. You know, and and uh, you know, I, and sometimes you know we make mistakes. We we we. Some and you have to allow, You have to allow, allow yourself to make those those yeah. mistakes. I certainly don't recommend I've the whole yeah. get married and get divorced and get married and get divorced plan. I don't recommend that to people. Uh, but it's I not also. Good for the wallet. I don't beat myself up over it either. And I don't look at either of those marriages and think I have so much regret Mm -hmm. because I would never have started painting if I hadn't met my first husband. And I went back to school when I was married to my second husband. Every relationship changes you. And when they end, you have to kind of hold on to the changes that were good and try to let go of those changes that were bad. And I think therein lies that growth. And it's so easy to say and so hard to do because it is so easy to hold on to the bad and the negative instead of just letting that go and then not throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak. And that don't throw like not every bit of that relationship was horrible or it never would have started. Right. Being able to recognize the pieces of it that were good, that are good memories that affected you positively. Yeah. And some good advice (laughs) advice I got from a friend was like, just take in the waves, don't fight them. Right, right. Like, you're you know, gonna have highs and there, there are those yeah. highs and lows again. You're riding the surf. Right. You, you get memories like, oh, such a good time. I wonder. And you get other like bitterness, bitterness yep. like yep. what? But then after a while they go away. You're like, all right, everything's cool. It's, you know. Yep. Yep. So and put it into your then put it into your movies. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, that's all a different thing. But I, I, I tell you, I tell you in a bit. But uh, and so you were studying at, at when you came back. You got you went back to school. I went back to school, and so I went back to school to Foothill. They have a, a two year program to certify you for adaptive fitness to teach you how to work with people with chronic needs, not just acute things. That are oh, so this go is away. way past the reservoir. Uh, the reservation was reservation. The reservation predates my first husband. So, oh, which, which reservation was this? Uh, this was uh, so the story of the reservation is. Er, I grew up in a very religious household, and I, um, so some of my friends, uh, I stopped I stopped attending church services when I turned 18 when I graduated from high school. I had a conversation with my mom. You know, I, re- I love you, I respect you, but I gotta I gotta go see what's out there in the world. I gotta see if this is real, if this means anything to me. But some of my friends were still friends that I met through the church community, and one of my girlfriends was like, my church has this like summer outreach, and this is like I had done like one quarter at De Anza, so I had barely barely stuck my toe in the college world and you know here I am thinking I'm, I'm 18 I'm going to college I'm such a grown-up now I know what I'm doing I know what I'm doing <laughs> shut up mom I know what I'm doing so, <laughs> so she's like we have I, I think that's the biggest lies lie we told ourselves at yes, 18 and 19 I totally know what I know I'm what doing. I'm doing it's like oh no I got don't. this I don't I still biggest don't have lie this. I ever told myself yes. at least <laughs> me too so my friend said hey my my church has this outreach program we go to louisiana we go to this reservation and we do like kind of we do kind of a vacation bible school thing but we also like we paint houses and we pick up trash and we you know we we offer services and goodwill to this you know not super wealthy 
southern community reservation in Louisiana. And I'm like, well, that sounds interesting. Sure, sign me up. What do I got to do? <laughs> got to get on a plane and you got to you gotta actually be willing to work. You got to actually be willing to roll up your sleeves and, like, paint houses and pick up trash and, like, actual work. Um, and then they, we got there and, you know, they have a, a list of stuff for us. <laughs> I, I, I definitely was the least... Um, I was more interested in the people on the reservation than the people I went out there with. I got a little bit irritated with uh, some of her church family. Yeah. Starting with the moment we landed in Dallas before we got on on vans to drive across the state line into Louisiana, they gave us t-shirts. Because, you know, they wanted everyone to know that we were part of this, you know, community outreach. Which wasn't a bad thing, except for when I put the t-shirt on and looked at it. The name of the tribe, um, the reservation and the tribe that we were going to assist, that we were going to go give service to were the Kushada people, and they're a branch of the Choctaw. And um, the t-shirt said, The Kushada Project. And I just immediately was, like, super offended. Like They, they just trivialized a history I, exactly, of, of a I'm culture. Like, I don't even know. Like, I, I, we haven't even gotten there yet, and I'm offended. Like, <laughs> hi, little Indian people. Can you be our project for the summer? Like, I was just oh, like, man. I don't want to wear my t-shirt. I don't want to be with these people. I don't want to do what this is about. And so for me, like, right from go, I kind of, like was separating myself from them like I wouldn't yeah. wear my t-shirt. This is embarrassing. I was I was I was I was I was offended and embarrassed to be a part of that. And it wasn't done maliciously. It was truly done out of just thoughtlessness and lack of education, lack of experience apparently of being around people other than your church people or I don't know it's very yeah. you know people with lack of experience and maybe some small minds it was just straight ignorance but like like but innocent ignorance it wasn't more it was it malicious. wasn't malicious yeah. ignorance but it was but still but still hurtful yeah right yeah. still hurtful so when I was out there you know working with some of the young people one of the things that we got to do because I wasn't super involved with her church I think they maybe were had some questions about like what I might do in like a vacation Bible school setting, like what I would tell them. They put me like I did some house painting. We certainly did trash pickup, but they also put me in with some of the the younger girls and were like, "You like writing? Why don't you do some writing with them?" Like you know. And so from that, you know, we didn't do a ton of like creative workshop, creative writing workshops, but we got to talking and got to seeing them as people and they them seeing me as a person and me seeing them as as a person. And so I actually started being, when I went home, I had gotten all their names and addresses and we actually were pen pals. I was pen pals with a bunch of the younger kids that I had come in contact with. And a couple, one of them in particular was a very well and articulate young man who clearly had a gift with a written word, um, a natural born storyteller. And he and I corresponded back and forth and he had, a, he had, he was the fifth of six boys. And so I had met most of his family and one of his brothers was in our age age range of the group the collective of us that went out there and so the people our own age we would go and like hang with like we would you know hang out and around the campfire or whatever so i knew these two boys pretty well from this one family and stayed in touch with them and then my friend who actually invited me to go with her she met a boy out there and she had a crush on him um so we actually went out there we flew out there and stayed with this family of six boys because I had also gotten to know their mom. And they she invited us to stay in their home for a couple of weeks. And I had still met just the five boys. I hadn't met the oldest yet because he was off doing like 
he was on like a oil rig doing like a 14 days on you know 28 days on 14 days off and whenever you know what in, the, in the gulf of mexico right yep and so yeah. i didn't i didn't get to meet him um but meanwhile my my one of my best friends is off you know <laughs> Becoming quite friendly <laughs> with their cousin, right. the boy that she had a crush on. Playing hooky? Got it. Uh, well, we, we were there on our own that time, which yeah. would, became a huge scandal because apparently, like, the church people thought that we were, like, you know, being deviant because we were going outside of the guy. We were going unsupervised. And mind you, yeah. you know, we're, we're both over 18. We're both in college at this point. Right. And we had been invited. Right. Um, so we took it upon ourselves to just be like, we want to go and be a part of, like, getting, continuing to build these friendships without our Kashada Project t-shirts on, right? Like, we didn't want to be a part of that group anymore. And then, um, so we were, we went for, like, a week. We were invited to come over, like, our, either our Thanksgiving or our Christmas holiday. Like, they invited us to come out for a week. And then the next year we went out again, but this time we decided to drive out. And by this time, she's really kind of long-distance dating this guy now right. at this point. And the t-shirts are gone by now, right? Oh, the t-shirts, yeah. I, I don't... A year later. I don't even know if I kept my t-shirt the entire time we were out there the first time. So this is now our third visit out there in two years. And we drove out there. So she and I road tripped because, you know, that's what you do when you're in college and you're now 19 and you're like, I'm super cool. We're just going to throw money, throw money into the gas tank and drive across the country, which was an adventure in and of itself with she and I driving across the country. But we drive to the reservation and now we're staying at the guy's place that she's kind of now dating. Yeah. And, uh, they had a community recreation center and the kids would play volleyball late at night because it was safe and well lit. And one of the nights we're like, Hey, we've got a, we've got a car. Like we'll, we'll run into town, town being non-reservation land. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it, it was very interesting. Like the dynamic of like the town folks versus the reservation folks, that line yeah. was very clear, uh-huh. not just the dirt roads to pave roads line, but the, the line of color was very vibrant and as at the time two kind of blonde haired blue eyed white girls from california living on the reservation are you a blonde uh dirty blonde yeah dirty blonde. My, okay. my, the red is not natural <laughs> okay I, I thought you were a natural redhead no i wish i wish it just grew out of my head like this. so so two blondes go into yeah town. it's like and so we go into town and of course you know it's a small town right small town small southern town so everybody knows like oh those are those girls those are those girls from the reservation. Those are those California girls from the reservation. So we go into town to buy snacks. And literally, like, we weren't buying alcohol. We were buying, like, Gatorade and, like, Doritos to take to the reservation, to the kids who are playing volleyball. And it's summertime, and so a lot of times as the humidity builds up, a rain comes down to kind of break the weather, so to speak. As we're driving back, my girlfriend's driving, and dirt roads, two city girls... In the rain, we actually spun the car out and flipped it, oh, put the car in the bayou, and then, like, literally had to, like, climb out our windows. Like, the car was relatively intact, and we were okay. Yeah. But it was like, okay, well, the car's upside down in a bayou now. Like, now we do. We drove out here. I, I, I like how nonchalant you're about it. We almost died, but... <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I mean, how, how, how that's you, and that's kind of how I told my mom the story, story too, when I called her the next day. Because, yeah, we just flipped <laughs> over, and we, we had to crawl out, broken glass and everything. And, you know, and, it was weird. Like, there wasn't really a lot of broken glass. Um, that's a tough car. What kind of car was that? Oh, it was an old stick shift thing that, you know... Those old cars are durable and safe. They're just built like as, tanks, right? Yeah. 
<laughs> it was not a fancy car. It was not a huge loss financially that this car didn't make it back from Louisiana. But that's actually why we ended up staying. We were supposed to drive out there, stay a week or two, and drive home and go back to school the next quarter. Mm-hmm. Clearly, that didn't happen. We ended up staying for like four or five months because it was like, well, the next morning, the call to my mom went something like, I'm okay, but I'm not coming home. I'm really okay. It's really going to be fine. Okay, bye. <laughs> Hang. Click. Click. <laughs> you know, and I'm not sure she had the number of where it was. Thank God for not having cell phones, huh? Exactly. <laughs> so four or five months go by, and at this point, clearly my mom and my dad have talked to each other, and I get a, I get a, I call to check in. I was checking in regularly, letting them know I'm alive. And by this time, you know, I... We we had kind of started living out there. Like we're with this family and we're cooking meals with them and we're living we're living on the reservation, but we're running out of money, <laughs> yeah. and our parents are running out of patience. And so at some point, uh, one of the phone calls home was something like, "Your father is sending you a plane ticket. You're expected to be, you know, you're expected to be in you know Baton Rouge in you know three days." get on the plane or we're coming out there. <laughs> okay. And then that chapter of my life ended. But that's how I ended up living on the reservation. But to to live on a re- reservation, what did you feel, you know, obviously from an outsider and from, you know, mm-hmm. uh, what did you take out of that experience? You know, it's interesting because this particular tribe has since made some big changes and there were changes that they were talking about at the time that we were living out there and that was... This is this was a very impoverished community, you know, but still, you know, people people were eating, people were feeding each other and themselves, and um, the hardest thing was was employment. People needed jobs, people wanted jobs, but there weren't a lot of them. The community and the tribal leadership went through a major overhaul uh, in the probably two three years after I left, and then. Um, the tribe decided collectively to go the route of um, of Native American gaming mm-hmm. and develop a casino, and that has since radically changed this tribe. Like the Cushada, the Cushada Casino, uh, it's a huge money maker. You know, those kinds of deals get developed at the state level too, so the state gets a piece of it. But jobs get proliferated. There's a payment that goes back into the homes of the people in the the community. But my experience with them at that time where that was just kind of a spark of an idea, like we're not even groundbreaking yet. We're not even in discussions with the state yet. There's no governmental, you know, ordinances or allowances or negotiations going on yet. This is just somebody's big dream. That was what a lot of them talked about was if we can get this, if we can get this casino going, we can all have jobs. And, you know, where the economy is at here right now for us, like that, those conversations where people want to work, right? but Mm -hmm. not having enough jobs, but, and coming from like a strong work ethic myself and that I was very impressed that people wanted work. They didn't want a handout. They weren't looking for some sort of, you know, subs, you know, subsidence or or subsidy. Um, They wanted, they wanted to eat. They wanted to work. They wanted to, and I, and I hate that I keep saying that word they, 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 because they didn't feel like a they when I was out there this community that I felt a part of wanted to work, they wanted to have food, they wanted to enjoy their families, and their families were really close and and spanned generations, which was also very familiar to me, having been, having lived with my grandparents, having cousins and a big family and multiple generations living in close proximity and gathering often. 
that felt very kind of people around the world have commonalities, right? It it exampled that to me. And when I went to go when I was what I was studying in school when I did go back to Danza, I got my associate's degree in intercultural studies and my concentration was on Native American studies and I did get to take some of that experience and apply it to my education. But even when I was studying, you know, cultural di- diversity in college, recognizing that the differences are part of what make us beautiful, but the similarities keep us connected and that we are at the end of the day all humans and we do want fundamental human things we want a place to call home we want food in our bellies we we want people to commune with and that was how i felt when i was there i felt part of that community communing with people there'd be times when families would get together and share a meal everybody would contribute to the meal and then you would just sit and eat and Sometimes you would talk and sometimes you would eat and enjoy in silence. And I felt welcomed. I felt part of it. And that was really beautiful. And at the same time, when we would go into town, <laughs> and, you know, I'm, I'm painting a slightly rose-colored version. I mean, there are certainly not everybody loved everybody, right? Like, they're all human. I'm painting a slightly rose-tinted version of this reality. But when we did go into town, we were still those girls, those California girls hanging out with those Indians on the reservation. Like that line to me is still embedded in my mind of traversing reservation life to town life. And it was stark and clear, Hmm. which is very interesting. In the South, as a Caucasian woman coming from California, that, that, that cultural diversity was also an interesting and less pleasant experience. Fascinating. All right, we've reached the hour. Oh, okay. We're closing up shop All now. Right. But before we do, one last question. Yes. Uh, pleasure having you here, here by you. the way. Thank you. But if you were to go back in time and you saw yourself still small, still with your playwriting your cousins, <laughs> right? You, you, you're still making these stories and, mm-hmm, and stuff. Mm-hmm. What's something you would tell yourself back then that would help you in this journey that you are now? Don't doubt don't doubt. Don't doubt yourself. Don't doubt the future. Don't worry about it so much. I was worried a lot as a kid, and I think a lot of us continue to worry into young and mature adulthood. If I worried less and I had continued to create more, I think there are places I could be creatively that I'm still working to get to. If I just didn't worry so much, if I didn't worry, is this good enough? Is it okay that I'm in my room playing with my toys, making voices by myself? When you're a kid, you're doing it because I was entertaining myself. I was storytelling to myself and I didn't care and I didn't worry about it. And if I, I think if I could take that imagination and that fearless creative impulse and apply it to my adult self, I think the sky's the limit when you, when you don't doubt am I good enough is it okay what am I doing where am I going especially creatively answering those questions if I just was if I just kept telling myself stories because I liked them if I just kept entertaining myself I think man that that could have there are moments that that could have taken me leaps and leaps and bounds ahead Mm. you know because it all started from me just wanting to entertain myself 
Donna, thank you for coming. <laughs> thank you, Ori. And uh, we're good, right? We had a good. We had a great time. This is awesome. You feeling good? Thank you so much for having me. Mm-hmm.